regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold in-depth conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their careers. My guest today is Mohamed El-Gandhi, a seasoned AI expert who has previously built and managed AI organization at Amazon, Rakuten, Twilio, and Synapse. In particular, he founded and managed Amazon's computer vision think tank. He's the author of the Deep Learning for Vision System book published by Manning in November 2020. Mohamed regularly speaks at many AI conferences like Amazon's DevCon, O'Reilly's AI conferences, and Google's I.O. So yeah, Mohamed, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Uh, thanks for having me. Very excited for this conversation. Perfect. By way of introduction, I believe that you are Egyptian and got your bachelor's in biomedical engineering at Cairo University in the early 2000s. Can you, you know, describe your interest growing up as well as your undergrad experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I can't claim now at this point, like, hey, I, uh, I was so passionate about something or one thing or another, but it's basically the, the same approach of, that I've been taking. And you will see it. My answer is basically you see a few doors open and then you try to make your best guess and then take the best, then the test door and then and so on. At the time, like you said, I'm originally from Egypt. I finished my high school and then based on your grades, you apply to schools. So for us, it was, okay, engineering, it was the high school to, to apply for. And it, it, it fit what my natural interest in, in mathematics and building things, just on a very abstract level. I joined engineering school, and then after the first year, you get to specialize in one of the, of the disciplines. And the reason I, I picked biomedical engineering, I was at the time thinking between computer engineering and biomedical. And I just got more interested in biomedical because it focuses more on the application than generic uh, software engineering. And biomedical school, it's basically the same as software engineering plus hardware engineering in the medical field. So I felt like, okay, again, I made my best guess at the time. Medical field is is a cool field. You build medical equipment, you work with robotics, and you work with software engineering, you work with the hardware engineering, so you get to learn more, which is one of the things that I, like an important metric that I use throughout my entire career. This move, how much am I going to learn? And then you, you can compare based on this metric. So at the time, uh, biomedical uh, engineering made the, made the mess, most sense. I joined there and uh, I had a great time. I don't know if you want to know more about what we we're, were doing, but I had a great t- time learning how you think as an engineer, you go into the operating room with, with physicians and you're thinking about, okay, what are, first of all, like the, the innovation part of it, what can be engineered in what they're doing? Similar in the startup side, like when you're looking at a problem and you're trying to figure out a solution. So first you look at how they are doing what they're doing and then how to help them better diagnose a problem or uh, even treat or, or in between, anything in between. So it, it was a fascinating experience that I had throughout the, the five years of, of college. I think in retrospect, it was a good decision. It helped me a lot after that when I left the hardware side and robotic side and I came back to it. It things kind of like that, uh, not necessarily what I learned, but it's more like how you thought about things. It was in retrospect, a, a good decision. 
I see. Yeah, it seems like that degree allows you to pick up a lot of that, that engineering mindset about rigor in, in your work and like you already mentioned, and that will have yeah. you later on in your career, right? Yeah. You then moved into the U.S. in 2006 to pursue an MBA degree at Nova Southern University in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then after that, you also spent a couple of years in you know, a variety of software engineering roles for organizations in healthcare and academia. Can you comment briefly on this phase of your career? Yeah, absolutely. So a step before that, after college, I worked for maybe three years in Egypt. And as an engineer who likes to build things most of the time, the medical equipment field in, in Egypt and the Middle East at the time, there was much less innovation and much less building and manufacturing and more on the selling side and the support and, and maintenance side. So at the time, I realized that, okay, if I want to be in the innovation side of things, Or, and use my, my critical thinking in adding something to this world, then I need to leave you know, this, the, probably this region and move to the US. So that was the, 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 the mindset at the time, looking at what should I, how do I get into the US, which is the phase that you mentioned. During these three, four, five years, it was more for me about how do you get into the system and whatever this means, all of it, in terms of immigration, in terms of the job, in terms of like getting like into the, buying the car, like even the simple logistical stuff, like buying a car and, and a place and so on. At the time, I decided to, instead of jumping into engineering school again, master's in engineering, I wanted to jump into the business side of things to align with my goals, you know, a few years from that point. I, want, I didn't want to be just heads down in the piece that I'm working on and more about looking at the management side or the business side, why we're building things and looking at the bigger picture of things. So I started my MBA, but I was still a software engineer. So I worked in, in school, software engineer. After I graduated from my MBA degree, I got a couple of jobs again with the same mentality of you got to get a job, you got to move. One of the most important pillars I mentioned before is how much I'm learning. Another important pillar is how fast I'm moving. Whatever like I have, I have whenever I'm at the fork of um, how to make decisions, I look at the different intersections that I have and then I decide, okay, let's move fast. And then you move fast at the end of the day, probably if you made a mistake, you can, you will fix it fast as well. So at the time, I, the fastest job that I can get or fastest way to get into the, the employment uh, system is getting into a software engineering job, which is my background. I wasn't really picky on medical field or not at the time. A, it, again, get into the system. B, it's not uh, that uh, I'm married to that field. I like. I liked it, but it was not the only field that I liked. I, I applied for jobs uh, like uh, any other process. I worked in several companies, happened to be, that was not a decision, happened to be uh, in the medical field. So Independence Blue Cross, it's health insurance. It's really not medical field, but uh, but it sounds like from the outside that I, I stayed in, within the same industry. But that was not the case because the day-to-day -day work uh, had nothing to do with the medical field as software engineer. After that, I joined Aspen Dental. We were building a, uh, something similar to the EMR, electronic medical record for their clinics. Uh, so again, it was not really specific to medical equipment. But again, it sounded from the outside that I'm planning this out. I wasn't planning anything. It's just more like happened that you get a couple offers for a job and then you pick the best at the time based on what you know. Yeah, thanks for sharing those experiences yeah. in your career. I believe that during this time, you also authored two books. First one is called 3D Business Analyst, The Ultimate Hands-On Guide to Mastering Business Analysis. And second one is called Business Analyst for Beginners, Jumpstart Your BA Career in Four Weeks. First of all, what, what was the motivation for writing them? And what advice would you give to first-time authors? Yes, the motivation here, again, it's one of those pillars that I have, which is I like to learn a lot. That was pillar number one I mentioned. And then the process of learning is you learn and then you build and then you share it with people. That's how I learn things. Then building can be building a product or building 
writing an article or create some YouTube videos, like whatever, like just something that puts you in the process of after you have distilled the information that you are trying to learn, you try to put it in some kind of format and put it out. So it just makes the learning experience has a goal. So you need like A, it helps you set a goal in your learning experience. You're not just learning, taking a course and then ends with nothing. And then forcing yourself to create something, whether it's writing about it or creating a product, makes you go back to the learning process and fill in the pores of what have you missed during the learning process. Like you always, when we're learning something, we, we some stuff stuck stick to our heads. Others just, we don't focus on the details because you're still learning, you haven't implemented things. But implementation after that, which is happened to be whether writing something or, or building a product makes you f- learn it on a few levels deeper and uh, it stays in your head for a much longer time. So that was the motivation really. The topic I picked, which is business analysis, for people who are not familiar with the term, Business analysis is like a product manager, but it, there's a role in the technical field. It's, uh, it's called IT business analyst. And these, the, we are as engineers, most here we are engineers in the Bay Area, but if you're in the East Coast or other non-tech companies, you can be considered as uh, IT. As an IT business analyst, you're the product manager between the engineers and the product or the customers. You understand what needs to be built. You write requirements. So you should be for engineers. So you should understand engineering. You should understand business. It's like the liaison between both sides. I found that very interesting at the time while I was working as a software engineer to just get into the system. But my eyes were on, I wanted to get into the business side of things. I wanted to get into the management side of things. So that was a good transition of learning something. I always like, and something that you will see throughout the conversation. I have my day job. And then at, at night, I always carve three, four hours every day to my side project always eventually happens that the side project this year ends up being my job next year and so on and keeps going. So my transitions, you will see, you know, through your list of questions has been the same way. At the time when I was software engineer by day, I was learning project management and business analysis by night, preparing hopefully that I can get into a manager role or a business role or a product manager role just to get into the business side of things. Mm-hmm. So when I learned that, I just went to, like said, however you learn things, uh, YouTube videos, online courses, books. And then I found that I was thinking about different things I can do with this learning. I found that writing a book about it was the, the most straightforward thing for this at the time because I created a lot of material trying to learn it. So I figured I'd put it in one place. Uh, the product was missing. Like there's nothing out there that helps you get into the business analyst side. I mean, there's a lot, but I believe that this was a faster approach or a good shortcut. So I created a book. That was the first book. The second book is basically just a shorter version of it. So I spent like a month or two. You can consider it version two. So the second version of it, which is uh, business analysis for beginners, it's focused really on somebody who's who was like me at the time, who was having any job uh, in technical or non-technical and want to get their first job as a business analyst. So that was uh, like a quick project of two months, adapting the first book into a smaller version of it. I'm just curious about sort of the publishing process. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Can, can you uh, share any challenges of like being first-time author? How do you like find the right publisher, things like that? Again, I, I took the fastest approach of things, right, uh, at, at the time. I wasn't trying to be an author. I wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, like to have like a bestseller book or not that, it, I mean, it did well, but the goal was really put something out. And the fastest way to get there is to self-publish it. So... Uh, with all the lessons learned from that. So uh, self-publishing, basically, you don't have a publisher that backs you up and pushes your book out in in places and and so on, which I was fine with that. What they do is you write on your own. And then if you want to have, you want to design the cover, you hire your designer, you want to design the interior of the book. So you do everything on your own. So I just, I I wrote on, 
Microsoft Word at the time didn't have Google Doc, I guess. So, but uh, you write your your material, and then I hired a designer, I hired an editor, uh, like a freelancer just from freelancing websites, and then I just uh, you published it. And then there are several self-publishing uh, companies, uh, Outskirts that I published with uh, was one of them. And there are others, even Amazon now, you can self-publish with them. So the experience has been, it was good. It was fast. Uh, the moment you're done, it's just all about a few uh, iterations uh, of just quick editing and so on. And it, the book is out there. Obviously, many years after that, I, I published another book with a publisher. We would talk about it. What was the learning experience and why the publisher might be valuable mm -hmm. or not valuable. But at the time, it was just uh, some project. I wanted to get it out. People see it, get reviews, get feedback uh, real quickly. So that was the best decision at the time. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for sharing that insight. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you feel quite about having your day job as a super engineer and you used to spend three to four hours a single day, night, writing this book, Learn My BA, really conveyed that hustle early on in your career. If you want to get into management, you have to like dedicate time in order to move to what that needle, right? Yes, absolutely. After like a variety of software engineering roles at, at these different companies, you moved to the Bay Area for a senior engineering manager role at Twilio. And in particular, you managed and shipped a series of communication API products using machine learning and neural networks. Would you mind sharing the story behind this professional transition and uh, what were some of those Twilio products that you work on? Yeah, absolutely. So the job before the jumping into a manager role, I was a technical program manager, which was the transition uh, that was at Yale, a transition from being a software engineer into a project manager. In, in my mind, some people jump directly to a manager role, some others go through different routes. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be people manager or not. That was not necessarily, it was never a goal on its own for me. But again, like you said, like I mentioned before, I'm trying to get into the business side and seeing and, and, and progress in my career in general, right? So I transitioned from a senior software engineer into a technical program manager uh, that was at Yale. And then the actual transition to people management happened at Twilio. I think I'm trying to remember what maybe around 2013 or 15, uh, around, around this area. Twilio had become, like a, it's very known at the time, maybe they've been five or six years in. They were still a startup, now they are, they are public. And I got this opportunity. I was applying for like, it's just regular applying for jobs. It's not like I met somebody at a network event or something. It's an area, by the way, that I'm lacking a lot in, which is the networking piece. I'm trying to do a lot better now. But back at the time, I'm just heads down doing my job and then applying for jobs. I applied for this manager role at the time. It was not an ML role. That was a big transition for many reasons. A, going into the Bay Area with all what it means, because I wanted to do that at the time. And then more importantly, jumping into a people manager role. Plus, as well, jumping. In, I wanted to jump into the ML side of things. I've been software engineering. It was a big role, and it took some time to get there. Uh, before that, there was a lot of studying, and you know, the MOOCs and everything that was at the time was that uh, if people are not familiar with the MOOCs concept, which is a uh, massive open online courses. So all the online courses that were started popping everywhere and getting uh, a lot of popularity. My side project before. Twilio was learning ML and understanding everything about ML. So I did like, oh, I started probably every course that I've seen out there was Coursera. Maybe I had just started, or I think maybe even before Coursera was like a, the YouTube playlist that Andrew Ng has created. Uh, so I just started learning ML and then I joined, I was not on the ML side. I joined as an, a manager managing the infra teams and build tooling. And then I was in the, the building tooling for ML for some time. And then the product that I worked on, like my flagship, personal flagship ML product, it was a product that eventually ended up being 
called Twilio Understand. It's an NLP project that understands the, the text and then understands the sentiment of what is being said and creating uh, a structured data from speech. This is when I know that we probably this is your next question, but this is when I realized that NLP is not the, something that I'm excited about. I'm still excited about ML, but NLP has it wasn't that area of focus for my next stages. I see. Just one quick note uh, about this move to the Bay Area. Like, how was your first couple of months at the Bay Area? Like, what is like the biggest cultural change in terms of work style, and then then you know sort of the fast moving business product development that you encountered? Yeah, I mean, first thing is lunch at <laughs> having having lunch at at the office. Right, this is one of the things that was not. I come from the. Uh, I mean, most of all my jobs before that was were in the East Coast. Where, where, like I said, engineering is called IT. So it's, it was not the, the, the culture there. And then walking, like on your right, you see Facebook. On your left, you see, especially I was like even in the Bay Area. So, I mean, sorry, in, in San Francisco. So I remember where, where I used to live, I had Adobe next to me. I'll send uh, Safari mm-hmm. and the other end and, and Google and Amazon offices, all of them. And LinkedIn. So that was the best experience I've had. I feel like a, a little kid in the candy store, like right? it's everywhere. Like, and then tech with my personality, I know that if I want to work at these jobs, I will just walk into these buildings and then ask people, Hey, I need a job uh, or I, I'm looking for this kind of job. This is how I felt like I can just grab anything I want or I grab any company that I would love to work at and then not wait for a job to apply for and just go talk to people. It was really, it was a really great experience for me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So after about two years at Twilio, you uh, accept another engineering manager role at Amazon, where you managed the Kindle Mobile and the Computer Vision teams. What were some of the engineering challenges you encountered to build ML system at Amazon? Furthermore, what are some of the key uh, leadership lessons that you acquire from managing team at Amazon? I think that the second part of your question is like what I believe is what I have, what have you learned, like leadership principles or management principles. I feel like this is the most influencing job that I had in my career in that aspect. Uh, but to answer your first part of the question, engineering challenges, not the sexy talk, which is the scale. And then obviously building inside the huge organization, which is Kindle, and then inside a huge organization, which is Amazon, it requires a lot of coordination, a lot of, in terms of on the technical stuff and the people side as well, like having to, when you're building the authentication for your app, or we're building mobile apps for Kindle, it goes all through the same authentication point. So you have to coordinate with other teams. It's really like, so the biggest challenge is not on the technical side. It's more about coordinating all the efforts into this, the same direction. That was on the like a very high level. We can dive a little deeper, but on the management side, what I've learned in Amazon, I think from anecdotal experience of the jobs that I've been to and talking to people that my peers and my friends, I would rank Amazon as like the best school, like the top, number one top school for people who worked for, especially on the management side. Uh, I would say that again, I don't want to repeat the Amazon leadership principles, all of them, the 13 of those or 11, but here are the most important ones, like building trust, right? Like the, the, the mentality of I'm a manager, I'm going to pull a rank and calling the shots. It doesn't work. Like it's just very, the poorest way of, you know, making the shots, right? Like you can, you can do that. It doesn't sit for some time and Amazon probably if you do that, they will let you go. You'll give you another management role, another role that's not management, sorry. After just a couple cycles, three or six months, you, will not, you cannot pull that off for a long time. Basically, as a manager, you understand that getting the team's buy-in is a lot of effort, building trust with others. It's, again, it's a lot of work and it doesn't, you cannot 
make decisions without that. It, it, again, Amazon is everywhere, right? And this is these are all basic things. But as a manager, it gets harder if I'm talking to you, James, and then I, I want to go right and you want to go left. Before I go into this conversation, I have to have done my homework and I understand why right and left. And I have to have some kind of logic. Yes, at the end of the day, you might not get everybody's buy-in, but at least people should understand what's the logic, what's happening in your side of your head and how you landed on that decision. They can disagree on this logic, but at least there is a way you know you got there. So several things, building trust, uh, doing your homework. I think they have a different word for it, but doing your homework like the Amazon doesn't like PowerPoint slides, for example, like Amazon culture. So having to put your thoughts in a document, mm-hmm. it makes you feel that okay, you have to have real details and more information you pushes you to think deeply into the problem. Uh, so I think Amazon overall has been a second college for me or uh, the best. I, I, I believe I learned from it better than uh, after and, and, and before in my experience, especially as a manager. I see. Yeah. I recently read a lot of articles and from people talking about this notion of walking backwards. I think that's... that's oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot yeah. that too. Yes. So Customer yeah. obsession. Yeah. It's just curious yeah. if you want to add on, on that point. Yes. Yes. Thanks for reminding me. Um, absolutely. So, so I think there's two principles. One is customer obsession. And the other one is working backwards and they can work alone and work together. But everywhere we were sitting in, in meetings and then you we discuss problems and then you start raising right away, okay, customer obsession. How are we customer obsessed about what we're doing? Or we're having disagreements or some kind of discussions between again, option A and option B. Let's see what principles that are connecting all of us. So we look at Amazon's culture. By the way, there's something I forgot. I'm glad you pushed back on me to remember. Every company, they have their own cultural values and then they put them everywhere. I think, again, not promoting like Amazon specifically, but the best one of the best companies that I've seen that implemented and made their teams eat and drink and breathe their own cultural values was Amazon. And here, that was the example here that you, we're sitting and then we need some guidance on how we make decisions. We go back to these values and you, you find somebody in the room saying, Okay, so let's. Uh, what? Is, how about uh, value number one, uh, or, or without the numbers? Like, hey, what about customer obsession? How are we customer obsessed here? That can help you. Are we trying to optimize for you know the team's happiness, or not even the team's, like uh, somebody else's, like a business decision, leader happiness, or customer obsession? So it helps you on that end. And then another thing that I forgot to mention before, which is having a backbone to disagree and commit. This is. I feel like this has been the most beautiful line I've seen anywhere. The reason here is. It gives the, the opens the room for somebody, an intern sitting in the room to sit in front of a director and then they can disagree with what they're saying. So they start with, I saw it a lot when I first joined, okay, I'm going to disagree and commit here. And then they say, so you start with this line, all right, because that's the company culture and start disagreeing with, you know, the highest rank in the room. And the beauty of the statement is not just having the backbone to disagree. It's actually the, how they close and commit. So the way you commit is, we're talking to each other and there's uh, always a d- one decision, one owner to that decision, right? The product owner or engineering manager or some kind of other leader. We all disagree while we're talking. If we're talking, we all disagree. And then if you once that decision has been made, it doesn't have to necessarily to be a democratic process, but you're you're free to like to express your opinions. And once the decision has been made, we're all committing behind this decision. And you don't see somebody, Mohammed, can say, "Hey, I don't agree with this decision. I'm not going to be, you know, whatever part of the solution." Or, "I told you whatever happens, right?" So this kind of sets the stage of, okay, you were disagreeing and committing. So we're going to disagree while we're deciding, and then when you're when once we committed, we're following all of us trying to make the decision succeed. These are values that stayed with me, especially being a manager. 
mm-hmm. right? especially after, after that, I was in a higher leadership roles where I'm actually selling the culture. And we'll talk about this, but these are like one of these values that I was impressed from day one. I have them still in my heart and I implement them everywhere I go. I think that part about disagreeing committee is pretty interesting. Because that requires you know you to be a very open-minded and love the feedback, right? You, you, you can have a different opinion, but like right after the decision has been made, you, you have to quickly like react, I mean, your opinion and then consider the other direction right away. So that like 180 degree switch applies. Your, yes. Your belief in your thoughts require like a very high level of like, cognitive fitness in order to yes, absolutely. prosper and thrive in that. Absolutely. Direction. Yeah. And the one thing that I forgot to, I know, again, when you asked the question that back working backwards, which is basically this, we start with the customer and then you work backwards from that. And then you start from a goal and you work backwards from that. And that helps with another thing that, you know, I don't want to be like the biggest advocate here for Amazon, but another thing that Amazon talks about it a lot, which is the frugality, right? So mm-hmm. basically you start from a goal and then working backwards helps you, you know, eliminate all the waste in between, you know, between you and your goal. I believe that you also taught a company vision course for engineers at Amazon's internal machine university. What have you learned about teaching that has significantly benefited your career as a practitioner? Yeah, the context around this exercise was I was in the Kindle team and I wanted to be more on the uh, computer vision side and core application is ML. I talked to leadership around me and I pitched the idea of having a uh, computer vision think tank, which is a team of uh, computer vision experts floating around several organizations, solving problems for them that they might not you know, have the answer for or they might not have the bandwidth for and so on. The, the idea was got good response from leadership around me. And then the first step is, okay, let's bring a team, right? Like we need to bring four or five people to kick off the team and, and create, start having a charter and so on. At the time, it was like everywhere else outside Amazon. It's, it's, it's hard to find, to hire or, or build ML engineering team. But back then, it was much scarce than now. And now still, the fastest approach for me is reach out to... Uh, MLU, Machine Learning University at Amazon, and they were just starting. And then I told them, hey, I have this idea. I want to build a team. How about I start a course, a three-month course? The program is is exclusive for Amazon engineers, for all MLU. So how about we start a program and then bring, uh, you know, 25 to 30 students and then, you know, go through the program and then get the people who are best people that we are interested in joining a new team. And then we form a new team. That would be the faster way to see the team. And that was the, and this is what we did. So that was the motivation. And we, I started creating the material and then I taught the course and things moved forward from that sense. What teaching helped me, I, I did a lot of teaching in any form, whether it's writing or actually teaching a course or creating YouTube videos, which I did very brief of those. It helps me personally understand exactly what I'm saying, because you always say, for example, if you think, okay, model architecture A is better than model architecture B, you can stop there if you're talking to yourself. But if you're teaching somebody, they will, you will expect to hear why is A better than B. And then something I learned from the other writing experience that you start a lot of claims when we're talking and uh, like exactly one is better or here's how I think about things. These are all claims that you can, when you're talking to yourself and working alone, you don't have to verify or validate. But when you're out teaching, you're in front of people, you A, have to know why you're saying what you're saying and why your opinions are this way. And then you will, most, in most cases, you will change them. So that was the teaching experience for me. You go and I had different goals than, than learning and being uh, like my previous approach, but going in there, having to put your thoughts and course material pushes you to structure your thoughts somehow, allows you to talk on the topic. Like a, one of the good side effects of the of teaching 
is that you can talk about the topic for a couple hours intelligently, right? You don't have to prep a lot for that. So I think I did it several times after that. Teaching is not an exercise on its own that I enjoy, uh, ironically. Writing is something I don't enjoy. I don't, I don't believe I'm good at in that sense, if anything, if anything. But the value of teaching, if you have not done teaching at all in your entire career, I encourage you to do it in any format, again, whether it's writing or teaching, uh, small or big, to see the value of the depth of knowledge that you have after the experience compared to before. When you mentioned that idea of going deeper in, into the topic, because you have to teach it to other people, right? That's like, you know, recall me about the Richard Farman techniques. And essentially, like, yeah. you, know, you have to try to teach something, you know, to relearn it the second time, you know, it reinforces you know, some the knowledge. So, yeah, thanks for yes. validating that claim. After three years at Amazon, you became the head of engineering at Synapse Tech Corporation. And, and based on my research, you know, this startup developed a proprietary threat detection platform to modernize securities and defense airport checkpoints, governments, office building, and many other environments. What were some of the both engineering and machining challenges you needed to address while building that platform from the ground up? Like I just mentioned that Amazon is like the most meaningful management experience I've had. I think I would say Synapse is the most meaningful uh, like overall experience that I had, given like having been in big, larger organizations my most of my career and jumping into a startup with a very small team. It was right after Seed. And then given the problem that we're solving, so just to give context for people, so Synapse builds computer vision algorithms that analyzes images in the um, X-ray machines in airports and other security checkpoints and highlights or draws a bounding box around prohibited items from threats or guns and knives and others and bottles and you know a toothpaste and so on. The challenge on its own, it's really hard for many reasons. A, it's a hardware problem. You're, we're deploying an actual hardware into the that is connected to the X-ray machine to intercept the image and analyze it and produce an output. So it's a hardware problem, it's a software problem, and then it's a computer vision ML problem as well. Top of that with the highest level of security and then the lowest level of infra that's available for you, meaning that our product that is deployed in, in airports is not connected to the internet. So from all the challenges that comes from the, the initial deployment and then the maintenance and then even the upgrades, it means that somebody has to manually go into the building and pull in the information, the logs or issues build another model and then come back and update it. It was a complex challenge to build that kind of product, not to mention the, the challenges that come from a startup, from like a, growing a startup and so on. Uh, so at the time here, I had to roll up my sleeves and then see where everybody is. We had like talented engineers across the board, but again, we were a small team. So I have to be roll up my sleeves in the hardware side, which I remember I told you it comes in handy, uh, what I have learned in college, which is something that I forgot about it. Definitely. I mean, it was like maybe at least 10 years between them, but at least I, I didn't feel intimidated working with hardware components and uh, looking at the motherboard and the, the IC components and I'm building them with my own hands, with the team, obviously. The challenges that come here, like we roll up here our sleeves and work on the hardware side. I did not dive into the software side uh, as much, but rolling up my sleeves again and, and working on the ML side. And this is where like everything that I have, all the challenges that we've seen at the time is what I'm working on fixing now, with, which we'll talk about the ML tooling that we're building. To answer your question, it was challenging scaling this kind of structure into how to transform a product that is built like a school project, like a demo, like a prototype MVP, how to transform an MVP into a manufactured product that is repeatable with the same accuracy and the same uh, quality 
and then at a scale of instead of having to do one or two every month, we need to have you know 20, 30 every week, right? So that and that was a small scale, and we were preparing for larger scale than that. So that involved a lot of partnerships with Dell to build with us and other vendors to collect the components and test them, and then partnerships with other X-ray vendors to deploy the product and provide maintenance at the customer site. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for, for providing those context. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned the challenges of basically doing ML inference on edges, on, on edge devices. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. I forgot this. So yes. Can you um, share a little bit about some of the practical challenges with that? And do you see any potential solution, you know, in the market right now that enable, you know, companies to deploy models on hardware devices more efficiently? One thing that we were doing is we were deploying on edge, doing emphasis on edge. And the reason here, other than engineering reasons like latency and the network issues, mm-hmm. but our customers, again, they don't have internet access or they don't allow internet access to these machines inside the facilities. Either way, like edge, even if we had internet, edge would have been the choice because if you think about when we were at the airport and your, your luggage goes into the X-ray machine, it stays on the screen for like a second or two seconds, right? And then by the time, like two seconds, it's, it's ended, you, okay, the operator that's looking at the screen either have found it or just moved on to some, some other object on the screen. So we had a window of 200 to 400 milliseconds to analyze the image and find the prohibited item and share that or like highlight it on the screen. Obviously, when we our first version had maybe like a two seconds to, to make the inference, and then the, the more complex the network that you're building. So we had several iterations of ResNet 52, and then 101, and then 152. And then the more you want learning capacity for your network, the yeah. deeper the network it is, and the more items you have, the deeper network the network is, and then the slower it is, and lower the inference is going to be. Uh, we had several modules before the inference module where we used to segment the, the images on the screen to feed the model. And that was a very challenging problem because you're segmenting components that you don't know their shape. It could be the bag, a rectangular shape or any unknown shape or circular shape. You were building an algorithm that cuts or segments the image to feed the model. And if it segments wrong, the model will be fed poor data. Uh, we moved away after that from this approach and we did real-time inferences on the video. There was a solution to this. But what I'm saying is like they're on the critical path to inferences. We had the starting point, we had several modules that's taken probably a second. And then the inference in its own is taken maybe 500 milliseconds. You're talking about a second and a half, which is too long in that operation. We moved away from this by eliminating a lot of components from the critical path and made it our model being fed just the frames directly from the screen without a segmenter, without any other modules before. And then uh, we moved other components. We still needed the segmenter, but for different reasons to structure our own data, but we moved it away from the critical path uh, to solve this problem. After this process, and obviously we optimized our network. I'm trying to remember what are they, I mean, TensorFlow had still has minimizing the, the networks. I'm trying to remember the approach we took, but uh, at the time that we, we, we benchmarked on different networks, we're doing good with SSD. Obviously with their ZLO for detection and, and SSD and then RCNN, again, it had better detection rates, but it's still, it was a longer process. So we ended up being on SSD and optimizing that. Fast forward, you know, six to eight months, we were doing inferences 
at uh, 200 milliseconds. And obviously we benchmark again as well on the GPUs that we're running on. When you're building a, a school project, you can get just uh, the best GPU that you can get your hands on. But when you're building business, you're trying to optimize for that as well because uh, that, that affects the cost of the product. So we benchmarked several uh, GPUs for emphasis and I forgot which one we landed on. But again, it's one of those, uh, maybe it was in 2080 Ti, it was before that, too. between 1080 and 2080, so somewhere in between. I think it was P4000s, yes, Quadro P4000s, if people are interested. I'm just throwing out unstructured thoughts because I remember now the details and I will stop now. But uh, there are several challenges in building a product like this and putting it out. So I mentioned again the, the inference time and then the hardware piece. And then even when, when we're choosing the GPU, you have your computer it has uh, several uh, PCIe slots. And then there are some GPUs that are dual slots and some GPUs that are single slots. And then, so you wanna make, so dual takes more. So if you have your PC, your computer fits four slots, you, then you can take only two large GPUs or four small GPUs. You take that in, into consideration because that affects the power and the heat as well. So these are all th things that we were thinking about. Like uh, we had a lot of GPUs at, in the beginning that just they got burned or stopped working for uh, other reasons. So, and then before the whole product, we put a power supply to make sure that in airports, when they lose power, we don't burn our own uh, machines. Again, back to the challenges, having to make sure that this product is working 24 seven and then the memory leak problem, we have to solve this problem as well. So having to work, make sure that the hardware product is working 24 seven, just to give inferences in 200 milliseconds or less has been a very challenging uh, technical problem. Yeah, I think that part about the trade-off between compute power and cost benefit, right? Very, very exactly, important. yeah. Yeah, particular business challenges. And then just one quick note as we go on to this topic, because, you know, Synapse, you build these highly complex segmentation recognition detection models, right? We all know that in any sort of computer vision application, the data preparation, data labeling, data annotation part is the most time-consuming and manual part. So. Can you share any challenges with you know, collecting and labeling data that your team has to go through? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as any startup in the beginning, you don't you know where you're going to get your data from. But once you start have a few pilots, you start having a lot of data. So initially, we had a warehouse that has maybe like six or seven extra machines. And then we manually go there and then we bought the actual you know, equipment, actual objects that we're trying to detect. So knives, we, you can imagine all the types of knives that you think about because you're teaching, again, your networks are not super smart. You have to show it exactly what it looks like. We manually ran a lot of, ran a lot of scans and then collected these images. And then we had, let's say, a few thousands of those as an initial start. And then we train our model and then we deploy. The moment we deploy, we're storing this data. Within like six months, we had millions of images at this point. And then later on, we had... By the time I left, I think maybe around 25 million images, and we used only a few of those, two or three, right? And then that was another challenge to actually how to use all of them. Uh, but for now, having to build the model, you need all this data to be labeled. So we, we partnered with offshore team to, that to, they get access to our store and we give them like, a, we do it in a certain way to make sure that the customer's data is secure. And then we, uh, they, they label all this data and they bring it back to us. But the lesson learned here is you start initially by labeling let's say guns, right? And then you say, okay, you label gun or not, and you draw the bounding box. And then after that, you learn as an MLN team that's building that, saying the gun is not enough and it doesn't help you with testing. And that's where, you know, that's what I'm working on now. You need to actually break that down into a lot of subgroups. The labeling piece, it sounds straightforward while it is, but the more you are working and improving the model and learning more about your problem, you end up changing your labeling strategy and labeling it again. So instead of saying gun, let's break it down into 10 types of gun that we know, right? Which is whatever, revolver, uh, small, big, and so on. And then 
break those down when you more know more into more detailed information about this object. So instead of saying just a, a revolver, you say a revolver that is no clutter and revolver with clutter and then and, and so on. You, you start breaking that down into more details and then you mature with the process and have better labeling strategy. And then you go back and either relabel or label new with a new strategy, but you always collaboratively working with the labeling team, telling them here's how, here's the labels, showing them examples, teaching them. And then after a few months, you have a better labeling strategy. You repeat that after all. Yeah, I see. That emphasizes the uh, iterative nature of the whole ML lifecycle, yeah. right? And, and really, I think more attention should be put on to the data compression step in general within the community. After Synapse got acquired, you briefly spent one year as the VP of engineering for the AI platform at Rakuten, uh, the Japanese e-commerce giant. Would you mind going over your experience there? So I was working at Rakuten Mobile. So Rakuten is as big as you know these giant corporations. They have different business units. One of the business units is a mobile network in Japan, and this is where I was working. And most of the team is in Japan, and we have a very very small team here in the US. And my role was to enable AI in the organization. And as this was as big as vague intentionally as that, just enable AI in the organization. And this includes talent, the process. And the infra. Jumping in there, uh, I had the plan. Okay, I shared the plan, but to take a couple steps before that, because it will help us all understand why I left uh, at the time. There was a month or two months that be at the end of last year, the year before, that when we were going through the acquisition process of Synapse, I was thinking about a product that could have, you know, solved a lot of problems that we had at Synapse, to, which is working on the ML testing piece. We had this problem, and then I was thinking about the product. So I started cooking something out and, and drawing some something on the, on, the, on the whiteboard. And that was going to be the, the startup that I wanted to build. But then when the pandemic hit, I decided to just take a pause a little bit because we didn't know that the raising scenario and situation, how it's going to be. And then I got introduced to the people at Trakuden. They're very ambitious, very smart people, had really big goals. So it was a very exciting experience for me. So jumping in there, I decided, okay, let's test my hypotheses in, in ML testing, as well as you know building the infra for ML. So the bigger goal was, okay, enable AI and then process people and infra. And then in the infra piece, I was focusing on building an end-to-end -end ML platform, similar to, you know, all the ML platforms out there and the, the market is full of those. So we were working through, again, the challenges of build versus buy in the beginning. And then we decided, okay, let's uh, use open source components like uh, Kubeflow and others and Kubernetes and build some infra on our end. And we, we tested several approaches of how to do testing and uh, for ML. And and by the end of the year, we found that testing ML, if it's done right, it saves more than 50% of the experimentation time. Because in mm -hmm. experimentation time, you're usually shooting in the dark as an ML engineer. While if you have done the testing process correctly, you have specific failure modes for your model. Think of them as bugs and make sure you can create an, a roadmap to, to fix that and then know exactly what you're trying to fix. At the time when we found that the results are really impressive in that end, I decided with my uh, lead engineer at Chakotan, who joined me uh, from Synapse. So we, this is the third time we're working together. Uh, his name is Andrew to uh, just take a leap of faith, solve the problem for everyone. We've solved it several times in different places. So we wanted to go out and build a Colina QA platform for ML to solve this problem. So that was, we started January 1st. Just you know, move directly straight into Colina, right? I took a look at the landing page a little bit. You know, as you said, a rigorous machine QA platform that lets users take control of the ML testing. And you already kind of alluded a little bit about, you know, the pain points that the team at Rakuten encountered during the process of building that ML platform. 
maybe take a look sort of the broader landscape. In your opinion, what is the current state of email testing infrastructure and why is there a need for a platform like Colina? To look at the landscape, let's look at the problem, right? That's being solved. The problem that's being solved is when you build a model, you always ask yourself, okay, I got to a 90% and let's say 90% of something, right? Accuracy, let's call it, right? And then you're measuring some metrics and you look at, okay, 90% of accuracy, then what is the 10%? That's the first question you should ask or we ask ourselves. And it comes really clear in, in products like or in defense problems that we're working on at Synapse when we were selling a gun detector and we told them, hey, this gun detector is 90% and compared to human detector, let's say it's 40 or 50%, that can sound like a no-brainer to buy this product. But the first question is, because it's a machine, it's not a human at this point, what are the 10%, right? And then let's say we pass through this and then you go to, we sold you a product, it's 90%, and now we're coming with upgrade 94%. Okay, it sounds interesting. What have you improved? These are things that we don't know. And we lost sales at some point that you go in and you say you're 99% gun detector, and then they test it. For like the user acceptance test, right? So they do the UAT and they throw a gun in an empty bin and it's so big on the screen, but we missed it. Why? Because we haven't tested that. I mean, we tested as much as we can, right? We, we, there was early on in our process that you collect the test set and then you try as much as you can that the test set to be representative in the real world, but that's never going to be the case. And then you start, you know, uh, get understanding why the model has failed. Fast forward now that we're working on this problem, you look at that the problem is basically I, the most ideal case is to build and ship. Like this is the leanest process in everywhere, right? Build and ship. But it's never the case for anything that's being built, even humans, when they are tested before they graduate from something. There has to be some kind of test to make sure that they passed a certain bar. Like this product has passed a certain bar that you call it quality. Now, with that said, as a builder of a product, what is your bar to say this product is good, has is high quality? or this product passes specific bar to go to production. It's not defined other than metrics. So the problem that I'm solving is these metrics, evaluation metrics like accuracy and recall and precision, they are not descriptive of what are the failure modes. They don't tell, give much direction on what you're going to do next. How are you going to raise your precision from 95 to 97? There's not much changes there. And then you're shooting in the dark. Let's get more data. Let's get something else like a more complex model. Let's throw in more GPUs because you're not really knowing what your model has failed on. So that's the problem. Now, look at all the solutions out there. If you look at the ML tooling space, you'll see that there are more around 200 tools that I've collected that I know of so far, probably more. And they're all in, in three main categories. Uh, one is in the data management piece and with labeling and management and so on. And then others in data and in the training piece. And then mm. the third is in the production piece. Mm. Now, the most efforts that are going to understand how the model will perform in production are going to model explainability, which is not a bad solution, but now there are solutions to actually test your model and you know understand exactly what are the bugs in the behavior. I'm not talking about system bugs at this point. I'm talking about actual behavior on how the model being tested and how the model is being detecting, you know, the, the objects in what way, right? So the tooling space now is the testing piece is super underserved for many reasons. The biggest reason is it's known that it's hard to test the model. I'm not claiming that we have a secret formula, but from the last six weeks, I talked to over 150 people. Mm-hmm. And I noticed one thing that ML team are categorized into two main categories. One is, okay, the evaluation metrics are fine. Uh, market is not pushing us enough to test our model. Mm-hmm. So that was fine for them. 
but I think they soon enough they will fall into this trap that we need to test it. Another team is that the market has pushed them. They matured their process, their testing process. They separately have converged into the same solution, and that was the interesting insight that I had. That uh, we at Synapse and after that at Trackatan, before that at Amazon, we implemented specific process uh, and tooling to test our models. And separately, people have done that, landed on the same thing, which is breaking your slicing your data set, your test set into smaller granular slices, mm-hmm. specific based on the behavior. So instead of saying, yeah, like I said, a gun car detector, you say the car from front view, from side view, back view, clutter, mm-hmm. occluded, not occluded. So you have actual test cases of your model, and then you run them on the specific test cases and you track them based on the test case. So this way you're able to see that, hey, my overall car detector has improved to 90%, for example, F1 score. But that model specifically regressed in the test case to detect the car from the back. So you decide to not deploy the 90% model and deploy the 85% model instead. You cannot do that if you're not testing your, your model. You're usually, you usually do your best guess based on the metrics that are measured. This is, a, I walked you, just a long answer, but so going through uh, what the problem was that is being solved, why Colina is the right starting point of the solution and where it falls under the, the tooling process. I think it's a new category that has to happen eventually, right after training, right before production, there should be a QA tooling for ML. Yeah, super interesting, that idea of category creation. I think like, you know, the ML uh, infrastructure space is still farming. And even with 200 tools, I think as a whole, you know, compared to engineering in general, I still think that ML ops as a technical discipline is still maturing. And it's great to hear your perspective on the need for a new category. And it seems like, you know, testing going to be one of the main focus in the future. We also collaborating with a few institution podcasters and, you know, ML influencers to raise awareness on the importance of ML testing and different approach to tackle this problem. Would you mind sharing any relevant resources for listeners who are excited to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yours as a starter, James, this is the first time I'm talking about ML testing now in, in public. So this definitely follows James's podcast. As for others, I'm still in the preparation, but the best way is if you follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn, I'll start sharing these talks because most of the effort, I think it will be, I'm being interviewed somewhere like this podcast, or I'm, I'm interviewing somebody. We're thinking about some LinkedIn live chat, or maybe when Twitter space is open or, or the clubhouse. So we're thinking about what, what medium is going to happen, right? But definitely there has to be awareness efforts to raise, like uh, efforts to raise awareness on ML testing. I think the best start since we haven't like the defined those yet is if you find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, that's the best way to connect with us. Yeah, and I'll be sure to include it. Mohammed's uh, contact info in the show notes, so anyone interested can reach out to him. And so kind of moving up a little bit from professional duties, you have also did a couple of few other side hustles. In particular, you work with Intel in autonomous drones, and you also taught machining content with Udacity. So can you share some details about these side hustles? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I was, like I mentioned earlier, I try to do a lot is I just have to find something I do on the side. Like I do my job in the morning and obviously takes time at night as well, but I have to find another parallel track that just solves this creative itch inside me. Unofficially, I just, or and some official, but unofficially, I consider myself as a good observer on what's happening. I see if Udacity uh, is creating something, I just reach out to them. Hey guys, I'm sorry you're creating this. Can I join? Like the way it happened with Udacity, I joined their first AI in a degree just as a student. Back then, it was a selective process, like this year application and the interview you and stuff, because that was the first one. But after that, because that's the pretty thing of, have, of being in the first cohort of anything or like the early 
a wave, then they were looking, okay, let's, let's find some mentors from these students, right? And then I was one of the mentors. And then I started talking to actual, the, the actual Udacity team. And then we were creating a machine learning nanodegree after the AI nanodegree. And I worked with them in creating the first one. Udacity started creating a program that's, I think they, they shut it down after that for probably business reasons, but uh, they created a program that uh, you're teaching, it's a, a flipped classroom style where you, you have the content online, but they are teaching in class as well. So I taught the first cohort was in, in, in San Francisco in the city. It was every weekend, every Saturday, probably for like three months. I did that. So everything, like they have a new project, I just jump in. If I have bandwidth in time, I joined that with Intel. They have, I think it's still there. It's called Innovator Program, maybe AI Innovator Program, I guess. But basically what they do is just a community of, of engineers and they are building things, products or anything. What the whole thing with Intel allows you to build with their own products. So they give you tools and they give you, I forgot what was the GPU stick that they had. It's called, it's like they have a, had a GPU stick. I forgot what it's called. It was a cool one. But anyway, so they support you with the hardware that you want, material, educational stuff, and then you build cool things and then they showcase it somewhere. So at the time, I was really interested in the autonomous flying systems, autonomous robots. I was working with the Udacity in creating their flying car nanodegree. I think that was what it's called at the time. So I just combined both. I studied Udacity nanodegree, and then I worked with Intel. They gave me this drone. I know you're seeing me in the video now. So they gave me this drone. It's a really cool drone. And I combined the computer vision applications. It has six cameras. So I combined the computer vision applications with the autonomous flying application. My experience here is just nothing materialized into something special after that, but obviously the learning experience. And then uh, I don't get to code most of my day in the morning, given like my manager role and I'm disconnected from the code base most of the time, but I get to play with my toys uh, at night with these projects. Super cool. Yeah. That, that learning mentality when you keep your programming as sharp. So you also have Create Markly, which is an educational platform with uh, different tracks curated by industry experts to guide users to master specific topics. What is the motivation behind creating this platform and what were some of the topics that you taught? Mowgli was one of those side projects. I was just, again, learning web development again. Like I had stopped being a software engineer for a few years and I wanted to go back to web development. I learned web development Ruby on Rails, uh, maybe Angular 2 at the time had just came out. So, and I started, I worked on a project, the project I had in mind because I like education and wanted to build a product. So I built like a marketplace where instead of creating content like uh, Udemy and Udacity video content, and you actually spend this a long time creating content, the hypothesis behind it is there's tons of free material on the internet and just you need somebody to help you navigate through it, right? So Mohammed knows, for example, machine learning. And then I just go in there, I, I create a curriculum. My, my brain is, or effort is all going towards creating curriculum and I put them in the right order. So I get an article and then YouTube video, how to create neural networks and then some kind of PDF and just any, any material, put them together in a track. And then learners can just learn for free from step one to step zero, uh, sorry, A to Z without having to, you know, search the internet, what's the right sequence of things. And then you chat with them, right? So it worked, it worked out really well. I think, I, I mean, I haven't supported the, the, the platform in, in many years, but I created the sales funnel. That's why I still have probably like 30, 40 users come every day. And the reason I have to launch this product, I created the first few tracks, which is how to crack the interviews, mathematics and machine learning and so on. And I created some YouTube videos. People come to YouTube videos and then they go to, they find the link to the Mowgli platform and then they go there. It's a project that I haven't uh, thought about in, in many years now, but it was just one of those things that I created. I learned something and I created it and put it out there. Finally, you author a book with Manning last year called Deep Learning for Vision System, which is a comprehensive resource that covers 
most important topics needed to work on complex computer vision applications and also dive deep enough into the math that makes them work. What was your biggest challenge throughout the process of writing the book? And furthermore, what was your favorite chapters to write? Yeah, so that is a different motivation, completely different motivation than the other books or other side projects that I created. The motivation here is I was thinking back in the time, maybe like I started two years ago or three years ago now, and I was thinking about maybe doing master's or doing maybe out of whatever, GPA, PhD or something. I just wanted to learn more about computer vision. I love the topic so much. And then I read about it all the time. I worked on it. I was at Synapse. So I wanted to like just deepen my experience and learning in the topic. When uh, Manning reached out to me about the opportunity, I figured this might be a more practical approach than having to go to school. So I did that. So the entire experience was, it took me maybe two years writing and six months in like the final stages of editing and so on. So two years and a half, it's a humongous amount of effort, but I think it helped me learn a lot, the depth of things. Like there's a reason, like when you have a project like this at the end, there are reasons to go through the roadblocks that, that happen throughout the project. And when you're learning something, you're not just learning, taking the easy way to learn. You're not going all the way now. Whatever you're learning, you bring it out in a book and then you're going to hear one star review. This book sucks if, if you said something or if you said something wrong, it's even worse. I think that was a, the, the best way for me to just push me to learn so deep on, on the topic and get like a deeper understanding. My favorite chapter, honestly, is chapter number five. And for one reason, it talks about several convolutional networks and how things evolved from, I remember, I feel like maybe the last, first one was LeadNet all the way to the complex networks that we have, ResNet and Inception. But the reason it's my favorite book is a favorite chapter because I wanted people who read the book, they go out of the book and not necessarily learn more about CNNs, but they should learn more about how to read a new research paper and what to distill from it, what to understand from it. And chapter five was my way of doing this, where I picked maybe six networks, six uh, convolutional networks. And what I did is I shared the paper at the beginning, and then I shared, here's what uh, I took from this paper, and here's how I implement, like here are the lessons learned from this paper, and here's how to implement it in code, and here are the results. And then network number two, how it improved on network number one. So if it started with LeanNet, and then after that was AlexNet, and then others throughout Inception and ResNet, you understand how these researchers thought about things, that how, why ResNet came to fix what in Inception net and before, and there's an Inception was V1 and V2 and V3. This is the best chapter to help you if you're nervous about, intimidated about reading research papers, then read this chapter, you will read the paper and come back, read this few pages about like I distilled information from this paper. Hopefully after this, you're not intimidated by reading research and implementing research papers. Yeah, that's a fantastic answer. I think that illustrates the importance of your understanding fundamentals. You're going through these events chronologically so you understand the different improvement and sort of the mental models that people use in order to improve one from the next yeah. way. This is out of curiosity. Are you still keeping up to date with research in computer vision? Like, is there any particular architecture or any specific advancement from the academic world, from conferences like CVPR or ICCV, for example, that you are excited about at the moment? I mean, GPT-3, like everybody's talking about, it's not computer vision, but it's like the next step in how you build neural networks. It happened to be NLP and not on the CP side. However, maybe in the last 12 months, I've been focusing more on tooling. I had just finished a book or three years on CV, so I paused a little bit on tooling, so I'm not up to date on that. I'm sorry, I paused on computer vision, so I'm not up to date on that. And I'm trying to ramp up on that tooling side. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So Mohammed, at this point of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and give a quick answers to the listeners. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you admire. 
I mean, there's tons of uh, obviously uh, popular people and like people that like, we admire. I think if I wanted like uh, be a little different, look at have different perspective, I would say I'd ask people to follow Andrew Trask and mm. uh, Francois Choulet and Lex Friedman. Uh, the reason here is like, I mean, obviously they are known, right? But they are they have different perspective into like what AI is or could be. They are doing a lot of great efforts in that end. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. Well, mindset, this, you mentioned this. It's actually Mindset by Carol Dweck. It talks a lot about different types of mindsets and then you understand from there. Okay, when you when you put a label on something, you understand what you're doing or what you want to do. So Mindset is a great book. Another book, now you said only one, but I, if you're talking about like the two top books, books in my to my heart is Mindset by Carol Dweck and Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Then uh, finally, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the early stage machining practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, don't be scared of reading and implementing research papers. They are really easy. It uh, depends on how people are you know, writing them. But uh, once you get the hang of it, it will be your one way of always being a few steps ahead of your peers and learning things before they go to books or online con- learning content. Perfect. I think that's an encouraging way to end conversation. Yeah, Mohamed, I really enjoy the chat today, learning about your background with your degree from Egypt, your move to the US, working at a variety of software engineering capacity, to transition into the Bay Area, lesson learned at Twilio, Amazon, Synapse, and Rakuten, your current work on um, ML testing at Colina, as well as a variety of sources ranging from writing books to teaching classes. And I'll be sure to include all the important links and resources in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to check it out and, and take a look if they're interested. I guess that the last thing is like, where can listeners find you on the internet? What are some of your uh, social handles? I'm very active on LinkedIn. It's starting to be a little bit active on Twitter. The handle is Mo, M-O, Elgendi, E-L-G-E-N-D-Y. No spaces, nothing on both LinkedIn and Twitter. So my man, Richard, and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, James, for the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.